There is another point I would mention. I cannot understand what you Protestants have to bring against our clergy for not marrying. Certainly your own Bible, which you put into my hands, clearly teaches that unmarried men can serve the Lord with less distraction and obstruction than those who have wives. No doubt you remember the passage. Surely then priests who should be entirely devoted to the sacred duties of their calling ought not to encumber themselves with the cares of a family. Culpeter, let him who is able to act on this principle do so, according to that of our Lord. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. And Paul in the epistle to which you have referred speaks of some who had not the gift of continence, and he advises such to marry, for he says, it is better to marry than to burn. But your system makes no provision for such cases, and yet these are so common that Paul advises on a consideration of the whole case that every man should have his own wife and every woman her own husband. Besides, what the Apostle says about the inconvenience of married persons has special relation to the times of distress in which they live. Therefore he prefaces his discourse respecting marriage with these words, I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man so to be. Art thou bound to a wife? Seek not to be loosed. 1 Corinthians 7 We do not maintain that it is the duty of all men to marry, but we believe was Paul that marriage is honorable in all. And we believe that any law or canon forbidding a whole class of men to marry is contrary to the law of God, and is one of the signs given by the apostle to Timothy of those evil times, which at a future period would certainly come. Forbidding, says he, to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God has given to be received with thanksgiving. Catholic, I have always understood that celibacy was a holier state than marriage, and on this principle we encourage young virgins to devote themselves to God, that they may give their hearts entirely to the Lord and be free from every pollution. Culpeter, I am aware that such is the doctrine inculcated in the Romish church, but it is one of the marks of an apostate church, which by its tradition sets aside the laws of God and counteracts the principles of our nature. If marriage was an unholy state, it would have been forbidden to all men as well as the clergy, and it should not be overlooked that in the passage where Paul seems to prefer a state of celibacy to a state of marriage, he has no special reference to the clergy, and Paul asserts his own liberty to lead about a wife, 1 Corinthians 9.5, as well as the other apostles. Evidently, then, marriage was not forbidden to the apostles, and in given the characteristics of those who should be put into the ministry, he seems to take it for granted that the pastors would be married men, for he also gives the character of their wives and rules for the government of their families. The only restriction he lays upon the bishop in regard to marriage is that he should be the husband of wife, which some interpret to mean that every bishop must have a wife, but the better interpretation is that he must not have more than one. Catholic, I think that in one respect an unmarried clergy has a great advantage. The church is not required to support their families, which I believe is felt to be a heavy burden among Protestants. Culpeter, this disadvantage is greatly overbalanced by the fact that marriage connects a clergy by intimate bonds with the rest of society, whereas celibacy cuts off the priesthood from all common interests in the affairs of men and leads ecclesiastics to form a society entirely distinct from others whose interests are opposed to those of society in general. The church is thus a separate concern, and the priests use every art and influence to draw into their hallowed circle all the wealth which they possibly can. And when once gained, it never can be distributed for the benefit of society, 
but yet remains perpetually the property of the church in Mortmain, as the lawyers say. By this means, before the Reformation, a large part of the best landed property in England and Scotland belonged to the church. But it would require a volume to reveal all the secret licentiousness and unnatural crimes which had been produced by this single cause. And these facts can be established by the testimony of popish writers, and these witnesses not few, but many. But I wish not to enter on this disgusting subject. Dialogue 9 Catholic I see, friend, that you continue like one of old to walk up and down through the earth. But observe I do not say that your object is the same, though our father confessor thinks you are not a whit better than the person referred to. He says you are a troubler of the church, an emissary of the devil, and that the books you circulate are full of deadly poison calculated to be ruinous to souls, that you already have seduced some unwary souls by good words and fair pretenses. I told him plainly that I could not entirely agree with him. I assured him that you had been a number of times in my house, that I had never observed anything in your conduct and conversation but what was becoming a Christian man. And as to your books, I told him that here was one, the Dewey Bible, which I was sure he could not say was full of poison. And here, said I, is another which the Culpeter gave to my wife, written, as he says, by a good Catholic. Look at it. It is entitled The Imitation of Christ. And what objection, I said, can you have to this, a call to the unconverted? I have been perusing it, and find nothing but what every good man must approve. Often, Reverend Father, you have warned us against sinful practices, and told us to forsake our evil ways. Yes, yes, he said, all this is true. But, John, do you not know that all of the sins which you can commit heresy is the worst, for it shuts the doors of mercy and cuts you off from forgiveness, by separating you from the true and only church, and from the holy sacraments, without which there can be no absolution? He then got very warm and chided me sharply for having anything to say to you, and warned me most solemnly never to look into any of your books again, and look. took his leave rather abruptly. Copeter, I do suppose that the man is conscientious in opposition to me and to the truth which I endeavored to circulate. Paul said, I verily thought that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus, and while dragging men and women to prison, and while assisting in the murder of, of unoffending Christians, he acted agreeably to the dictates of an erring conscience. I have learned to pity and pray for such as are thus misled by their education, and by the ears which they have drunk in, as it were, with their mother's milk. The power of prejudice, especially when it has become inveterate, can hardly ever be removed, but by the special operations of the Holy Spirit. I know it by experience. I was as much opposed to evangelical truths as anyone I ever met with. I was a self-righteous moralist. When I heard men preach the necessity of the new birth and of justification by the righteousness of another, I was often provoked to anger and felt as if I would be glad to have it in my power to stop the mouths of all who preach such doctrines. And if I had been left to myself, I should have continued under the same delusion. But it pleased God to lead me to see something of the wickedness of my heart and life, and to show me that I was in the broad way to ruin. And my distress increased at such a rate that if I had not found relief, it must have driven me to distraction or despair. Catholic, I should like to know, friend, how you found relief. And my anxiety to know this is not a manner of vain curiosity. But ever since I read that little book, A Call to the Unconverted, I've had strange sounds in my ears and many fearful thoughts starting in my mind. I'm striving to banish these unpleasant thoughts, but my efforts are ineffectual. It is continually running in my mind. You must be born again. You must repent or perish. 
I would have opened my mind to our priest, but I knew what he would say, and I had no thought of revealing the state of my mind to you until I found by what you just said now, that you have once experienced distress of the same kind and found relief. Now, dear sir, do tell me, how am I to get deliverance from this trouble of my mind which has come upon me? Culpeter, yes, friend, I can point you to the effectual and only remedy for a soul wounded with the conviction of its sin and danger. The remedy is most simple. It is only to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart. It is to look to a crucified Redeemer who invites all laboring and heavy-laden sinners to come to Him and learn of Him, and they shall find rest. Look unto me, he says, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved. If you are enabled to trust in the righteousness of Christ alone and to renounce all dependence on your own works and on the absolution of your priests, you will find relief. Catholic but I cannot think you will receive such a sinner as I am. I once thought that I was in a fair way for heaven, but all my former hopes are fled, and I know not what to do, for I am so vile and unworthy that if I should come to Christ, I am afraid He would cast me off and, and spurn me from His presence. Culpeter, never, never. He said to him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Hear what Paul says. It is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Christ says He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, to seek and save the lost. But here, take this little treatise of John Bunyan, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Dialogue 10. Culpeter, I'm glad to meet with you. When I last was this way, I left you in great trouble of mind. I do not believe you have been out of my thoughts a single day since. And to say the truth, I should not be here now, but for my anxiety to know what issue God has given to your concern of mine. Catholic, friend, I thank you for the interest you take in my salvation. My trouble of mine continued for some weeks without abatement. I read over the little book which you were so kind as to lend me, but it does not seem to suit my case. Indeed, I was fully persuaded that no one had ever been in my sad condition. I fully believed that I was given over to a reprobate mind. I heard that God had mercy on whom He would have mercy, and whom He would He harden. I said, Surely I am one whom God has hardened, for my heart felt as hard as any rock, as hard as a nether millstone. If my salvation had depended on it, I could not have shed a tear. And when I attempted to pray, I was shut up. I could scarcely speak a word. I spent much time in reading the Bible, but everything was dark and mysterious, except one, and that was that I was a lost sinner, a castaway, a reprobate. Sleep departed from my eyes, or I was frightened with dreams. I almost forgot to eat my daily food, and my business was much neglected. My wife, a good woman and conscientious Catholic, observed the change in me and was much concerned about me. I had not revealed to her the cause of my trouble, but she suspected that it was connected with my talking with you and reading your books. And one day she said to me, John, what, what ails you? Why are you melancholy and so restless? We never see a smile on your face and you seem to take pleasure in nothing. This has come from your acquaintance with that peddler and his vile books. I never wanted the man to come to this house, for I observed that he had an oily tongue which might easily mislead such simple folks as we are. And as to his tracts and books, I wish they were all this moment in the fire. Oh, John, go to Father Benedict. He will give you comfort. Often I have gone to confession with a troubled mind, but Father Benedict always had a kind word from, for me. And if you will go and confess your fault in meddling with those heretical books, you will find relief. I said, Mary, I believe you are very sincere in your advice. 
But I tell you that I will never confess to a priest again as long as I live. I am sure he cannot pardon my sins. How can a poor sinful worm of the dust like ourselves pardon our sins? No, Mary, if I ever find rest, it must come in a different way than that. Well, John, said she, if you will not go to confession, throw away those heretical books which have already well nigh turned your brain. Why, my dear wife, I said, I read scarcely anything now but the Bible. And do you call God's holy word a heretical book? She replied, It may be good for them to read it who are capable of understanding it, but it is not for such poor, simple folks as we are to undertake to interpret the sacred scriptures. Let those who have learning do this, and we will hear what they say. But I said, What if they tell us wrong? What if they are ignorant of the truth themselves? How can we find out whether what they tell us is true, but by searching the scriptures to see whether these things are so? Well, John, I can't dispute, but I can believe everything which Father Benedict tells me. And John, I wish to let you know that when the father was here, he said it was full time that our daughter Susan should come to confession, that in the spring the bishop would come round to administer the sacrament of confirmation, and he wished to have all the young people in his parish ready. I told her to do as she pleased, that I would not advise a girl to go, neither would I hinder her. Accordingly, she talked with Susan, who was distressingly defiant, and the girl was thrown into an agony. After a severe conflict with her feelings, she agreed to go, but when they came to the priest's residence, they found that he was confined to his room with a severe attack of sciatica. But calling my wife into the room, he said that there was a young priest in the house just from Ireland, from Maynooth College, a fine, discreet, and learned young man. Let your daughter confess to him. Susan at first refused, but after much coaxing and some threatening, she went into the confessional, and the mother remained in an adjoining room. In less than a quarter of an hour, Susan ran to her mother and burst into tears and seemed at the same time full of indignation. Well, what's the matter, Susan, said the mother. Oh, said the girl, I will never go to confession again. The priest asked such questions as I am ashamed to mention to you. I'll never go again. My wife went immediately to Father Benedict, who seemed much concerned, and sent for the young priest and asked him what sort of questions he had asked the young woman. No other, said the young priest than what we are taught by our textbook to ask. What textbook, said Father Benedict? Din theology, answered the young man. The old priest seemed to be confounded, but said, Young man, that book will not answer for this country. The people here are wide awake on that subject, and an enemy of the Catholics has extracted many things from that book which greatly shocked the feelings of the people. That book has done us much harm already. Several persons brought up in the true church have lately forbidden their wives and daughters to go any more to confession. I know that Din Theology is in high repute at Maynooth and is studied there, but we must announce it here or it will throw a mighty obstacle in our way. Copeter, all this is very interesting, but I wish to learn from you how you obtained deliverance from the burden of sin which oppressed you. Catholic, I was about to tell you. One day as I was sitting musing on my deplorable state, it was Sunday and I was alone in a retired spot. The sun was near the horizon and everything was still. I opened my Bible and read, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. 1 Timothy 1.15 The thought struck me, If Jesus Christ can, can save the chief of sinners, why can't he save me? Casting my eyes on the book as I turned over the leaves, they fastened on these words, For he is able to save to the uttermost all them that come to God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for us thought again occurred with more force than before. If he is able to save to the uttermost, why is he not able to save even me? 
At that moment a ray of hope leaned on my dark and desolate mind. It seemed to me as if a voice said within me, He is able, he is able to save to the uttermost. My heart was filled with joy. His hardness was melted into tenderness. I fell upon my knees and thanked God that I was out of hell and that salvation for my soul was possible. If a world had been given me, it could not have produced a joy so great. And yet I perceived nothing but that my case was not desperate, as for a long time I had supposed. Oh, how precious did Christ appear! I felt my heart overflowing with gratitude to Him as my Savior, and, and I beheld a divine glory in His person. His love in dying for poor sinners affected me beyond expression. I said, Lord Jesus, I will follow Thee whithersoever Thou leadest me. Though I did not dream that I was a believer, yet I felt happy beyond anything I ever experienced. And I cannot but believe that at that moment God gave me a new heart. All my views were from this time greatly changed. My heart went out not only in strong affection to my Savior, but I felt a wonderful affection for all that I believed to be real Christians and an unspeakable compassion for poor perishing sinners. I could have gone on my knees to entreat them to forsake their sins and come to Christ who was able to save to the uttermost. I could have taken my worst enemy in my arms. My heart was so full of love that it, it embraced the whole world. Culpeter, how long did these joyful feelings last? Catholic, not long. I turned away my thoughts too much from the blessed Savior and began to think what a happy change I had experienced and some proud thoughts arose in my mind. Soon after this, thick darkness came over me and I, I thought that I had experienced... A delusion. My old feelings in some measure returned and I was sunk very low. But still there seemed to be a voice within me saying, he, he is able, He is able. Then I thought, oh, if He were as willing as He is able, then I should still have hope. And after laboring in the dark a few days, light broke in on my mind clearer than before. I now seemed to see clearly why it was necessary for Christ to die. And that salvation would have been impossible without the shedding of His blood. It was now clearly revealed to my mind that God could be just and justify my soul on account of Christ's merit. The plan of redemption appeared more glorious than anything I had ever contemplated, and ever since I enjoy a settled peace and entertain a good hope through grace. Culpeter, have you spoken to your wife respecting your new views and comforts? Catholic, I have. She appears to be brought to a stand. She is dreadfully afraid of incurring the anathema of the priests. Though she now reads the Bible, she seems afraid of being seen with the Scripture in her hand. But I hope the Spirit of God is at work within her conscience. And poor Susan receives the truth of the Gospel with an astonishing readiness. She spends all her spare time in reading, and she tells me that she prays every day for a new heart. May the Lord hear her supplications and grant her request. Culpeter. But what will the priest say when he comes to visit you? Will he not be filled with wrath? Catholic. I care not for his anger. I mean to tell him all my mind and declare my intention of leaving the Roman Catholic Church. I'm now convinced that though there may be a few pious souls in that communion, the church is in an awful state of apostasy. May God have mercy on the people. Dialogue 11 Catholic My good friend, I never wanted to see anybody in my life as, as much as I have wished to see you these many weeks. I've had sore conflicts since I saw you last. Without were fightings and within were fears. But my dear friend, I must tell you all, I've dishonored my Savior and betrayed Him like Judas to His enemies. My soul has been worse burdened with a load of guilt than ever before. What, what a wretch I am! What a heinous sin I've committed! 
Pray for me, if peradventure the Lord may give me repentance and forgiveness. Culpeter, I beg you, tell me, what's the matter? What crime have you committed that has cast you down into such depths of distress? Catholic, I will tell you all. And may the Lord enable you to speak a comfortable word to my poor, wretched soul. As I expected, the old priest, as soon as he was able to go about, came around to our house and to make an apology for the imprudence of the young priest and the shameful questions which he put to Susan at the confessional. He said the young man who had but just arrived from Ireland was deeply mortified at what had happened and solemnly declared that he had no other motive in proposing the objectionable questions than to do his duty as he had been instructed at Maynooth. And he went and brought the book and showed the very questions which he had proposed to the young woman. I believe that he was a very pious young man. And he said, in the old country they have very different notions about these things from what you have here in America. There they think it very necessary to search the secret sins of such as come to confession, and especially to bring young and bashful females to a free confession of their secret sins, who would otherwise be guilty of the dreadful sin of covering over their transgressions, and thus, as it were, lying unto the Lord. And he said, John, I tell you these squeamish notions which are lately getting into the heads of our young females are all borrowed from the heretics. Formerly, John, I asked such questions and worse of some of the finest ladies in the land and received their candid and penitent confession. Yes, John, I would have you to know that your own wife has often been questioned in this manner and it never offended her. Upon this, I could no longer restrain my wrath and said, To lie, you old hypocrite, you vile old lecture, I believe that your whole religion is a vile system of hypocrisy and iniquity. And I will now call Mary and see whether she will confirm what you say. Father Benedict said, You need not do that, for no good Catholic dare tell what is said in confession. If your wife were to affirm or deny what I have told you, she would incur the heaviest excommunication of the church, a crime so flagrant that in other days it would have brought her to the stake. My passion upon this rose higher, and I came, became very abusive, and alas, was tempted to use profane language. Oh, Lord, forgive my sin. My conscience is burdened, and I have not told you all. When Mary came in, I asked her whether any such questions had ever been put to her at confession, and she promptly answered, Never! Upon finding that the old priest had deliberately told a shameful falsehood to the dishonor of as virtuous a woman as ever lived, I was so incensed that I took him by the shoulders and pushed him out of the house. As soon as my passion cooled, I regretted what I had said and done, and I, I went out like Peter, and I, I, I wept bitterly. Lately I was one of the happiest men living. All day my heart seemed full of joy and peace. And even in the night when I awoke, I would be singing the praises of my divine Savior. But now for three weeks, no sinner out of hell, I think, has suffered more. <clears throat> oh, do you think it possible that I can be forgiven? Culpeter, yes, the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. Peter cursed and swore and three times denied his master, even in the, his presence. And he obtained forgiveness. And so may you if you are penitent as he was. Catholic. But Judas repented and yet found no forgiveness, so he restored the money which he had taken as a price of betraying his Lord. And often it has come powerfully into my mind, go and do as he did. There is no pardon for those who have sinned as you have done. The sooner you know the worst of your case, the better. Go and hang yourself. If I had not believed that this was a temptation of the devil, I know not what desperate act I might have committed against my own life. Do tell me, my dear friend, what you think. Let me know the worst of my case. Culpeter. 
As I think you have truly repented, I cannot doubt that God has pardoned your sin. And Christ seems to say to you as he did thrice to Peter after his sin and repentance, Lovest thou me? What answer can you give to this? Catholic. Oh, if my heart does not deceive me, I can say with Peter, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Culpeter, then set your heart at rest. My little children, says the Apostle John, sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Catholic, thank God, thank God for this visit. My heart is relieved. What a dear Savior. Christ is more precious to my soul than ever. Dialogue 12. Catholic. I'm truly glad to see you this time. I am like to be brought into trouble for my change of religion. My landlord, who has heretofore been very favorable, has sent me word that when the year is out I must remove. I know that he has been influenced by Father Benedict to adopt this measure. Now, friend, I want your advice. What course to pursue? I have been able to lay up but little, and I do not see where I shall find another home for myself and little family. Culpeter. You need not disturb yourself about what you shall eat and what you shall drink. Has not our blessed Lord pledged his word that if we seek first the kingdom of God, all these things shall be added? Consider, he said, the lilies, how they grow, and they toil not, neither do they spin. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe ye, O ye old little faith? The world is wide, and there are thousands of better places than this from which you are so reluctant to part. Next month I expect to go to the west as far as Iowa, and I will look out a place for you. And there you will soon be able to procure a farm for yourself, and not be any longer dependent for a home on the will of another. But let me hear how your soul prospers, and how it is with your wife and daughter. Have the rules of the synagogue excommunicated you, or do they still hope to gain you back? Catholic, I have no doubt that... We shall all be excommunicated by bail, book, and candle, but this requires some time. The bishop must be consulted, and he will not be round here for six months. As to myself, I have but little to say that is favorable. I begin to find that I carry about with me a heart deceitful above all things and de desperately wicked. I compare my inner man to a chamber in which filth has been accumulating for years and, and into which the light has begun gradually to shine, re revealing a degree of loathsome defilement which was never suspected to exist. I am sometimes greatly cast down and much troubled, but then I speak to myself in the language of David, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, who is the health of my countenance and my God. Mary finds it very hard to give up the Mother Church and her prayers to the Blessed Virgin, but has at length come to the conclusion that she will study the Bible and go by that, for she has lost all confidence in man. Father Benedict, she thought, was free from fault, and she was willing to trust her soul in his hand. But since he told a deliberate falsehood and stuck to it, she thinks no man can be trusted but God only. Had it not been for this detection of her father confessor and a known falsehood, I'm of opinion that she never could have been induced to leave the old church. But this has broken the strongest tie that held her. And she says that Father Benedict is a false man. What must I think of the herd of priests and Jesuits who go about the country? Still she makes this excuse for Father Benedict that he was brought up among the Jesuits and belonged to that society. And I have heard that their doctrine is that we may tell a lie to answer a good end. As for example to save the Catholic Church from reproach or to prevent us being known what secret doctrines are held and taught among them. 
This, no doubt, is the true secret of the old priest's conduct. He was, he was afraid that the imprudence of the young priest in asking a young woman such indelicate questions from dim theology would get abroad. And he wished to hush the manner up. And so pretended that such questions had always been common and proposed by himself to the most virtuous matrons in the country. And he calculated that my wife would be afraid to say whether or not such questions had been propounded to her. But she is now on the right track, studying the Bible night and day. Sometimes she reads in the common English Bible, and then she will turn to the Dewey Bible and compare them. And I am persuaded that she is incessant in her prayers at the throne of grace. And as for Susan, she is as happy as a day is long. One of our neighbors lent her a hymn book and taught her to sing some of the hymns. And while at her will, is either singing hymns or has her New Testament spread out before her, on which she fixes her eye long enough to catch a verse which she soon has committed to memory. She rejoices in her deliverance from the confessional and from the priest and says, Christ is her priest, to whom she will confess that she wants no other and she reads of no other in the New Testament. Dear girl, she has greatly outstripped her father in the gospel of grace. The end. The following is called The Love of the Truth by Archibald Alexander. I think it is John Newton who somewhere says that he never knew any person who appeared to be actuated by a sincere love of the truth who did not come right after a while, however far off he might be when he began to feel this motive operating. The case of the Reverend Thomas Scott is a remarkable illustration of this remark. When he, was when he commenced his correspondence with Mr. Newton, he was a Socinian and was solicitous to engage his correspondent in a controversy on the points of difference. Mr. Newton, however... While he avoided controversy, still entertained and expressed the hope that Mr. Scott would come to a right belief, because he thought he perceived in him a sincere desire to know the truth. It seems to me that this is one of the first lessons which they learn who are taught of God. The Holy Spirit, when he would lead anyone to the saving knowledge of the truth, produces in him a spirit of humble docility. The soul led by the Spirit thirsts for the knowledge of the truth. This is, very, this is a very different thing from ardent attachment to particular opinions which have imbibed from education or from the connection with a particular sect. Such attachments cleave to error as tenaciously as to truth. A man may be willing to lay down his life in defense of his opinions and yet may be destitute of the love of truth. The genuine love of truth makes its possessor willing to relinquish his most cherished opinions as soon as it shall be satisfactorily demonstrated that they are not true. The love of the truth renders a man not only earnest in the pursuit of the beloved object, but impartial in his judgment of evidence. He fears deception and admits new opinions only after the evidence has been thoroughly sifted and weighed. This disposition is commonly accompanied with a deep sense of our ignorance and liableness to error. The lover of truth cannot be satisfied with mere plausible appearances. He must have solid ground to rest upon. He therefore digs deep until he comes to a rock. And as the Holy Bible is a treasure of divine truth, he searches the scriptures daily to find out what God has revealed. But conscious of his liableness to be misled by ignorance or prejudice in interpreting the oracles of God, he is incessant in his prayers for divine illumination. Such a one trusts little to his own reason or human authority. He wants to hear what saith the Lord. They who search for truth as for hid treasures shall not be disappointed. There is a gracious promise that if we seek we shall find. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. The Peace of God, Archibald Alexander. There are three words pregnant with precious and important meaning, commonly used by the apostles in their salutations and benedictions, grace, mercy, and peace. 
These words include everything which man needs or can desire. Peace is a legacy which Christ gave to his disciples. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. And after his resurrection, the first time he met with his disciples when assembled together, he said, Peace be unto you. He gives peace not as the world giveth. He is the Prince of Peace, and his gospel is a gospel of peace. It is called the peace of God because he is its author. It is a sweet and gentle stream which flows from the fountain of life beneath its throne. Happy is he who has received his heavenly gift. It will, in the midst of external storms and troubles, preserve his mind in a tranquil state. It is independent of external circumstances. It is, it is most exquisitely enjoyed in times of affliction and persecution. In the, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but these things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. It is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. It includes reconciliation with God, being justified, being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace of conscience is a fruit of reconciliation with God. The blood, which reconciles when sprinkled on the conscience, produces a sweet peace which can be obtained in no other way. If the atonement of Christ satisfies the law which condemned us, and we are assured that this atonement is accepted for us, conscience, which before condemned, as being the echo of the law, is now pacified. The peace of God also includes freedom from jarring discordant passions of the mind. The wicked, however prosperous externally, can have no true peace within. Their ambition and pride and avarice and love of ease and carnal indulgences can never be harmonized. One may be the master, but the other will arise and create disturbance and turmoil within. The only passion which effectually harmonizes the discordant passions of human nature is the love of God. Wherever this is introduced, it will not only be predominant, but bring all others' desires into willing subjection. The peace of God is not a mere negative blessing consisting in exemption from the misery of discord. It is a positive enjoyment of the purest, sweetest kind. It is a foretaste of the bliss of heaven. Nothing on earth is so delightful. It is therefore said to pass understanding. No one could have thought man's miserable soul could possess such enjoyment in this world. But why, but why is so little known of it in the experience of professing Christians? I leave everyone to answer for himself. A short conversation on fasting and prayer. Yesterday a pious young minister of the Baptist denomination called upon me and said he wished I would write a short article for the messenger on the duty of fasting. He observed that among Christians of our day he feared this duty was much neglected. I referred him to a valuable discourse of the late venerable Dr. Miller on that subject, published some years since in the National Preacher, which he said he had not seen. I told him that I was not in favor of periodical fast once a week or once a month, that there were times when we ought not to fast, as our blessed Savior said to the disciples of John in answer to their question, Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. Then they shall fast. To this my young friend assented and observed that soon after his conversion he determined to fast one day in the week. But after practicing this for some time he found that it was degenerated into a formal observance and he gave up the practice. He remarked that it was evident from one declaration of our Lord that there were cases of obstinate evils from which deliverance was not obtained without adding fasting to our prayers. The reference was to Matthew 17:21. Howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Fasting was made a part of all religions, true and false, and it is much practiced among the heathen, the Jews, the Mohammedans, the Romanists, and the Oriental Christians. 
And because the practice has been turned to superstition, Protestants have too much neglected this duty. But eminently devout men in all ages have found fasting an auxiliary to devotion and to the mortification of sin. Some professors neglect it altogether under the false notion that literal fasting is not enjoined, but only penitence and abstaining from sin. There are, however, degrees of fasting, both as to the time of abstinence from food and whether the abstinence be total or partial. The Ninevites, when brought to repentance by the preaching of Jonah, tasted neither bread nor water for three whole days. This was a severe fast. Daniel fasted for three full weeks, but this was not a total abstinence, for he says, I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth. And Peter's fast, when he saw the vision of the sheet let down, was only until the ninth hour, that is, three o'clock of our day. External fasting without corresponding internal penitence and humiliation is hypocrisy, and such fasting is severely reproved by the prophet. See Isaiah 63. And God says, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even unto me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. And our Lord warns us against ostentation in our fasting. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thy head, and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto the Father who is in secret. And thy Father who seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. One special occasion on which the apostles and their companions were accustomed to fast was when ministers were to be ordained and sent forth. Thus we read in Acts 13.2, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And again in chapter 14.23, And when they had ordained elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord. Is this practice now followed by those who ordain? As fasting renders some person sick, so that it hinders their devotion, such should adopt partial abstinence, for the Lord will have mercy and not sacrifice. But his causing pain is one end of fasting, that we may afflict our souls. A Disciple A disciple is a learner, but a learner supposes a teacher. The church is properly a universal school where Christ is a great teacher. The Word of God contains all the lessons which are inculcated in the school. But as Christ is the sum and substance of the Word, He is not only the teacher, but the subject of the lesson taught. According to that saying of His, this is eternal life to know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. Or that of Paul, ye have not so learned Christ, as so be ye have heard Him, and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus. Do you ask how we can gain access to Christ to become His disciples? Say not in thy heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. A genuine disciple is not only taught out of the word, but by the Spirit also. External teaching, however correct, is not sufficient. Man needs internal illumination by the Spirit. If a man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of him. Not that this divine instructor teaches anything different from the Word. No, he takes of the things of Christ and shows them unto us. He is the Spirit of truth and will guide the disciples into all truth. He reproves the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. But what are some of the lessons learned by the disciple in the school? Number one, the worth of his soul and the value of time. 
Number two, veneration for the Holy Scriptures as the infallible rule to guide our faith and practice. Number three, our ruined and condemned state, children of wrath even as others, dead in trespasses and sins, without hope and without God in the world. Number four, he convinces the human heart, or rather gives the soul a glimpse of the indwelling sin, by which it is convinced of total depravity. Oh, what a host of evils, what a fountain of impurity, what a mass of corruption. The heart is found to be deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. There is found nothing in it truly good. What can be done? Where shall the sinner fly for relief, whether but to the house of mercy, to the city of refuge? There stands one with wounded hands widely extended, who invites the perishing sinner to come to him for safety. The guilty soul hesitates, fears this invitation cannot be for one so unworthy, but no other door is open, and the kind entreating voice is still heard, Come, and him that cometh I will in no wise cast out. It ventures, trembling, it advances. It throws itself into the arms of divine mercy and is graciously received without merit, without upbraiding. Becomes a son or daughter by adoption, and if a son, then an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. It learns to prize Christ above all persons and above all treasures. To you who believe he is precious, it values him above all price as a teacher and as a ruler, as well as an atoning priest. It, le it learns to roll all its burdens on the Lord. It learns to live out of itself by desiring vital supplies from Christ day by day, as says the disciple, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, the disciple is taught the beauty of holiness. Moral or spiritual beauty is the glory of heaven. External glory is nothing, but moral divine excellence is the glory of God, comprehending all his divine perfections. To view this excellence as a beatific vision in which the happiness of heaven consists. O oh, glorious state! O oh, blessed abode! Finally, the disciple learns to know the reality and sweetness of communion with God. While many are contended to worship in the outward court, he desires to penetrate into the Holy of Holies, where he can hear the words of the divine oracle and see the resplendent face of Emmanuel. The apostle teaches that the most holy place is a type of heaven, and surely nothing on earth is more like heaven than intimate communion with God. Deceitfulness of Sin all sin takes its origin from false views of things. Our first parents had never sinned had they not been deceived by the tempter. Eve saw that the forbidden fruit was beautiful, and she was persuaded also good for food, that is, pleasant to the taste and nutritious. Here was a deception. This fruit was never intended for nourishment, whatever might have been its flavor. It was intended for trial and not for food. But the greatest deception practiced on her first mother by the arch beguiler was that the eating of this food would make her wise to know good and evil even as it is known to God. The deceitful words of the tempter wrought this unfounded persuasion in her mind. The desire of knowledge is natural, a part of man's original constitution, as well as the appetite for food. But these natural propensities are not to be indulged by every means and gratified on all occasions, but should be kept under the government of reason and conscience. The brutes were made to be governed by appetite and instinct, but man is the subject of law, and he cannot but feel the binding obligation of law. He is a moral agent, and may properly be subjected to a trial whether he will obey the law of his Creator. How widely different does sin appear after it is committed from what it did before. Passion or craven appetite creates a false medium by which the unwary soul is deceived and led into transgression. 
After our first parents sinned, their eyes were open. A sense of guilt unknown before now seized them, and this is like a new vision, not of beauty, but odious deformity. Innocence is lost. Shame and confusion take the place of peace and purity. Unhappy change. The guilty pair are now sensible of their great mistake, of their guilty act, of their disgraceful condition, of their ruined state. Their whole race is ruined. What will they do when their Creator shall make His usual visit, heretofore so delightful and instructive? Hark, He comes. His voice is heard in the garden. The wretched culprits are seized with terror and consternation. Guilt causes them to flee from the presence of the best and kindest of fathers. They try to hide themselves. They run into the densest, thickest of the trees of the garden. But they cannot conceal themselves from the eye of omniscience. They cannot escape from the arm of the Almighty much less resist his power. Behold the Creator, not finding his creature man in his proper place, sends forth a voice which must have been like the most terrible thunder when the awful sound penetrated his ear and resounded through his whole soul. Adam, where art thou? Trembling the guilty pair came forth to meet the frowns of a displeased and righteous judge. We need pursue the interesting history no farther at present. From this first transgression, by which sin entered into the world, we may form some idea of its deceitful nature. This first sin is a sort of exemplar of all other sins. As they flow from this, as streams from a fountain, they all partake of the prison of their origin. In all sin there is some bait, some apparent good, some expectation of pleasure or profit from unlawful indulgence. Right thoughts and motives are for the moment forgotten or overborne. The attention like the eye of a fascinated bird is fixed on point from which it cannot be withdrawn. The enticement prevails and guilt is contracted. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves 
would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.